Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is December the 29th, 2022. A couple of days left on the year, and as uh, regular viewers... Listeners to the show know uh, over the last few days, we've been trying to make sense of 2022 and look forward to 2023. One thing about 2022, of course, we've just come out of it, was the World Cup in Qatar. A lot of people think it was the best World Cup of the 21st century, which actually, given how bad the World Cups have recently been, isn't saying much. Uh, Messi's uh, Qatar room is about to be turned apparently into a museum after he won the World Cup for Argentina. One wonders whether the socio-political and uh, moral uh, aspect of that room and who built it will be memorialized. I somehow doubt it. When it comes to the Middle East and the Arab world, uh, 2022 remains Shrouded in some ways in mystery, the recent news is that a far-right Israeli government has been sworn in. Benjamin Netanyahu, the ultimate survivor, is back. One wonders whether it ever go away. Uh, Al Jazeera asks about a Middle Eastern roundup. Um, to move forward, we look back, uh, and that's what we're trying to do on today's show. Has some interesting developments, uh, apparently an Israeli-Saudi normalization, for better or worse. Uh, Syrian and Turkish defense ministers are, are meeting in Russia to maybe try to figure out a way to end the Syrian civil war. Uh, when it comes to economics, the Egyptian stock market gained, while the uh, Saudi one marked the first annual loss in seven years. Uh, but of course, Energy remains enormously important. Turkey announced a big boost to its energy ambitions with uh, their Black Sea gas reserves. Uh, the Turkish uh, leader, uh, Erdogan, suggested, coming back to the World Cup, that Ronaldo was dropped for Portugal uh, because of his support for the Palestinian people. One wonders whether that might or might not be true. Meanwhile, Israeli-Turkish relations uh, are being redesigned, re-evaluated. And my favorite Turkish analyst, in fact, my, Tur my favorite Turk, is my old friend Soli Ozel. We were at grad school together many years ago at UC Berkeley. He's based in uh, Istanbul, and he's one of the most perceptive analysts of Turkey and of the Middle East, of Israel, of the Gulf, and I'm thrilled that he's joining us from Istanbul. Soli, um, my introduction was a bit muddled, perhaps because 2022 was a, a slightly muddled year in the Middle East. What, for you, are the most important developments? Well, yeah, for the Middle East, probably the most, I mean, there were several important developments, but I think for the future, one of the most important ones was that uh, a Saudi prince, the um, de facto ruler of the country, would twice refuse to take a telephone call from the president of the United States. I don't think anybody could have imagined such a thing only a few years ago. And uh, not only that, uh, at the end of the day, Mr. Biden, who considered MBS a pariah, that is Mohammed bin Salman a pariah, 
and that he would not accept to see uh, in the White House or he wouldn't want to invite in, in Washington, had to go to Saudi Arabia and uh, presumably didn't shake his hands, but fist bumped and all that. Uh, so at any rate, he had to swallow what he spat, as we would say in Turkish. So that shows how um, the um, war in Ukraine, that is the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and the repercussions of that invasion actually changed uh, so drastically in a way, at least for the moment, the distribution of power across the globe. Even the Financial Times, I think yesterday, had a, an editorial, board editorial, basically making the argument that, yes, we may talk about the big um, powers, China and, and the United States, even some people talk, talk about bipolarity, but in this, on the, on, under the existing circumstances, some regional powers, such as um, obviously India, but uh, Saudi Arabia, maybe Brazil, South Africa, Turkey, really have a lot more leverage over what goes on around them, and they have much more uh, potential to refuse or to resist pressures that may be put upon them by uh, Westerners, definitely by, by, by the United States. And that is indeed a new world. On the other hand, I think... I mean, they... coming back to the new world, Solly, we used to call that world the non-aligned world. How different... I really don't think this is the non-aligned world, quite frankly, because the non-aligned world was non-aligned in name. Most of those countries were aligned with one or the other poles. They did not have the same kind of pull as regional powers appear to have today. <clears throat> I mean, so it is not really, I don't think, a recreation of the, of the non-aligned movement that we're witnessing, but basically what I call, what, what, what I see emerging, Andrew, is a, an asymmetrical multipolar world, uh, meaning you have a number of power centers, but obviously power is not distributed evenly, the United States is still a formidable force, followed by China. India is, of course, going to be an important power in the future, but it's not there yet. And then you have a number of regional powers whose support uh, would be important for any side. In fact, uh, uh, right, at, right after his um, coronation, I would say, Xi Jinping, uh, made a visit uh, to um, to the Gulf, went to the to Saudi Arabia, uh, met with other Gulf leaders, and basically asserted uh, China or inserted China into the political economy of the of the Gulf as well. And that is something that obviously Saudi Arabia today quite relishes. And indeed, uh, in China is already the number one buyer of of Saudi oil. So this is really a world. We have not been accustomed to this is a world that is changing. Power relations are changing. Whether or not this is a function of the current situation whereby everything appears to be fluid uh, or it's, it's a durable thing really remains to be seen. Uh, and it, it sort of fits with some of the things, uh, some of the headlines I showed, um, Israeli-Saudi relations normalizing um, the Turkish and Syrian defense ministers in Russia. What does it mean for, if, if you're right about this asymmetrical multipolar world, Soli, what does it mean for powers like Turkey, Israel, and Saudi Arabia? And what does it mean more broadly for the Middle East? 
let me start with this issue of normalization. I just got back from Tel Aviv, actually, and I did see some old friends uh, and uh, some commentators. I don't think anybody expects a, a, a very uh, formal or uh, open uh, reconciliation or normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia and Israel anytime soon. Uh, one of the most important reasons, of course, that even as daring a, a leader as uh, Mohammed bin Salman would not really take that step um, while his father uh, is still alive. His father, after all, is from the old school. And for him, the Palestinians in reality or in show actually count for something. Secondly, uh, are you saying that they don't count for something for MBS? I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think the Gulfies care as much about the Palestinians if they had cared about the Palestinians, except for, a, I don't know, a show, uh, they would not have signed the Abraham Accords in the way that they mm. did. The Abraham Accords was basically a formal declaration that the Gulfies care more about their own security, which is not abnormal, obviously. And that uh, given the fact that Iran for them is the most important security threat, they would actually want to cooperate with, with Israel. Uh, the Emiratis are also interested in Israeli technological prowess. They want investment opportunities there. They want the Israelis to cooperate with them. So this is really uh, almost international relations 101 type national interest driven uh, policy on, on, on their part and the Palestinians don't really figure except as part of a lip service. Now, whether or not the, uh, the, the scenes we've seen uh, in the, during, the, during the World Cup whereby in Qatar when the Moroccan team really, really uh, came all the way to the semifinals uh, and every time they won, Palestinian flags were uh, all over the place and, and the Palestinian issue appeared to have unified the entire Arab world or at least the Arab publics, that was all fine and dandy, but whether or not this will be, this will have any impact on the way um, those countries that have made their peace with Israel and their behavior, I, 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 I certainly doubt. The Palestinian issue is still there. It's probably going to get a lot uglier with the current Israeli government, which already in Bibi Netanyahu's opening sentence uh, expresses an imperial design over all of mandate Palestine and uh, in that particular approach to the um, to the land and to, to the people who live on it I really don't think either the Palestinians under occupation and even Israel's own Palestinian citizens really can feel uh, can feel comfortable so uh, so I don't expect an Israeli uh, Saudi open rapprochement or formalization of their relations any any anytime soon as for turkey turkey approaches the the i mean on, in syria turkey's desire or turkish president's desire to meet with bashar al-assad is nothing but an acknowledgement of failure because from day one not from day one but sometimes in about four or five months into the syrian civil war uh, Turkey basically made it clear that it wanted uh, Bashar al-Assad out. At that time, the Turkish government was very optimistic or hopeful that almost everywhere where the Arab revolts have taken place uh, and, and the governments were changing, uh, 
Muslim Brotherhood was going to come to power. And given the fact that the Turkish government has its pedigree in Turkey's Islamist movement, and they had organic relations with Muslim Brotherhood in all those countries, uh, they, were, they were expecting the Muslim Brotherhood to win power in Syria as well. And of course, they, they themselves situated Turkey at the center of that network of uh, Ikhwan run, that is Muslim Brotherhood run governments, and it, Turkey would be a leader in the Middle East. That plan, that project, that uh, actually uh, spectacularly failed. And uh, one, one of the signs of the failure of Turkey's uh, hegemonic designs over the Middle East were actually the rapprochement with the, uh, the United Arab Emirates, which Turkey accused for being the underwriter of a coup attempt back in 2006 against the existing government, of Saudi Arabia, whose uh, secret services have murdered, butchered actually, a, a Saudi dissident journalist, and then they destroyed him. I don't know, they put him in acid. Mm. And also Egypt, uh, which was um, the recipient of a lot of insults from the Turkish uh, president because uh, because of the ouster of Mohamed Morsi and, and, and the kind of uh, repression that was exerted on, on the Muslim Brotherhood all over. And Qatar actually had to eat some humble pie as well, although they still finance Hamas, which is the Palestinian Muslim Brotherhood, uh, Qatar also had to accept uh, um, e Egypt's own terms in order to reestablish. Uh, so, sorry, you mentioned the Abraham Accords. A lot of this sounds like business as usual, medium powers jostling for influence, bumping into one another, creating new alliances, undermining new alliances. Is there anything new? In 2022, I mean, well, there is some uh, coming back to these Abraham Accords, which of course uh, were the work of uh, Donald Trump's son-in-law. Um, are they for real? Well, for the moment, they are for real. But with the current Israeli government, whether or not they will have even the the, the, the very weak legitimacy that they may have by the publics, by the Arab publics, will that change? I mean, with, with, the, with this government's behavior and what, whatever we might actually witness in the coming years when this government will be serving, uh, whether or not that will change anything, I don't know. But uh, it will put the um, governments who have signed, that have signed their um, agreements, uh, normalization agreements with Israel under, under the spotlight. Uh, whether or not that will make a difference, I really do not know. I don't and think coming back to Syria, Syria... You mentioned the Turkish Syrian ministers being in Moscow. Has anything changed in Syria? We're talking tomorrow to Joby Warwick of the, of the Washington, uh, the Wall Street Journal, who's a Syrian expert. Has anything changed in 2022 there? Or does it remain a, a Hobbesian civil war, essentially? Oh, this, I mean, in a way, um, it's obviously not as uh, well covered as it was at the beginning. Uh, there is some degree of stability in the government around parts of Syria. The government really wants to have its uh, rule uh, over all of Syria's territory, and obviously it doesn't. Uh, Turkey occupies part of the north. Uh, the Americans are in the west of the Euphrates River. The Idlib is basically a, an amalgam of several jihadi organizations that are at each other's throats in order to control to control that region. 
What changed as far as Turkey is concerned is Turkey's desire or Turkey's need actually to make amends with the um, with the Syrian government. And so far, the Russians were very encouraging. The Turkish president said that if the time came, if the time was right, he would actually speak with the president of Syria. Uh, but it was really the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, that was not particularly was not particularly willing to have that meeting. But now that we have the defense ministers having met in, in Moscow, I would not be surprised that prior to Turkey's elections, I think that will come around mid-May, uh, the two the two heads of state might actually might actually meet. But in terms of regional issues and tensions, the Turkish uh, the, the sorry the Kurdish question continues to simmer. Nothing much has changed on that front in 2022, has it? Uh, no, in that, except that Turkey has expressed uh, at least twice very strongly its desire to go and uh, attack the PYDYPG uh, inside Syria. It was blocked by Iranians, Russians, and the Americans. Right. And this reconciliation with, with Bashar al-Assad, and uh, especially through the brokerage of uh, of the Russians, which might finally give Turkey either a green light or an amber light, uh, and a small operation might take place, and that can be also sold to, to domestic audiences. How much of the instability in, in Iran is impacting um, the Arab world, particularly uh, Iraq? How, how is that playing out, and how could it play out in 2023 if things continue to unravel in Iran? Right. Uh, I mean, the thing is, of course... It is quite amazing what the Iranian women in particular and the Iranian society are doing. It appears that even those who may have at the beginning basically uh, indifferent to what was going on are now uh, siding uh, with the rebels. Uh, and uh, this regime is actually taking hit after hit. They are brutal. They can actually very bloodily suppress uh, uh, but so far, in spite of all the viciousness that they could uh, they could display, they were unable to quell all all the demons all the demonstrations. Even if they did succeed, sooner or later, I think there's a big dent on the legitimacy of the regime, which and far more different or far more serious, in my view, than the previous occasions when uh, at least some part of the population rebelled against uh, against the. Um, Mullahs against the Mullah regime. It appears, and I mean, I mean, unfortunately, I don't know Persian, so I don't follow the Persian language sites or or newspapers. But what I gather is uh, that even within the in the bosom of the regime as well, there, there does seem to be some cracks. And what you and I have learned from uh, Chalmers Johnson when we took the uh, revolution class, if many years ago. If there is dissent among the ruling elites, then the possibility of change is there, or it becomes it becomes even probable. So uh, I'm 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 watching it, but of course Iran is the number one security issue for the Gulf countries and also, of course, for Israel. The Israelis, of course, are far more enthusiastic about an attack against Iran, which the Gulfis do not really share. So the Gulf regimes are very weary of Iran, and I'm sure they are not very comfortable with a popular rebellion that might actually unseat a sitting government, which even though they despise that government. 
uh, and they they have relations with the Iranians. They talk to them, and uh, but are of of course very weary that Iran's influence all over the Sunni Arab world is is expanding. Right, as as Iran is unravels, how will that impact, or how has it impacted both the politics of Iraq and and the Lebanon, where Iran has also obviously. Uh, finance supported Hezbollah. Uh, are there changes there? Or is it again, business as usual, lots of muddle, lots of political struggle, a lot of smoke, but not a lot of fire? Um, look, in, in Lebanon, I think one of the most interesting things during the year in Lebanon was that Hezbollah gave its consent to the signing of the gas agreement between Israel and Lebanon. Given the fact that Hezbollah would not do so without some, uh, I don't know, uh, understanding on the part of the Iranians or support on the part of the Iranians, it's a very interesting development that the via the via Hezbollah, the Iranians actually gave okay to a deal that might uh, that that would allow uh, Israel and and Lebanon to basically share the the gas reserves uh, on on, the, on, the, on their shores, and they they will know. How to divide it? That was pretty pretty important. As for Iraq, uh, the Iranians are unlikely to to give up their control. Uh, there is resistance to Iranian uh, influence, I understand, but they are well entrenched. They do have militias, and therefore it's very difficult for the Iraqis to actually gain their full sovereignty and their independence from from Iran and Iran Iran backed. Uh, Groups within 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 the country, so that will continue to be a mess. And there is also fighting uh, on the Kurdish side. Turkey has been fighting its nemesis, the PKK, Kurdistan Workers Party, which is situated in the Kurdish regions of uh, of Iraq. And there too, what used to be a what used to be a more stable uh, region, he also now sees uh, a lot of skirmishes between the two big chunks of Kurdish political uh, picture, uh, the Barzani and the Talabani tribes. Actually, So, sorry, uh, I, uh, the, the one country we haven't talked about, we touched on, is Egypt, the most populous country, run by a, a hardline military regime. What, has anything of any interest happened in, in Egypt, or is it just stagnating, as it seems to have done? Egypt stagnates, but it is... Egypt, Egypt continues to stagnate, but it is also get it is also being kept afloat because you don't really want Egypt to actually implode. I mean, Egypt has a population of about 104 million people. Uh, it is uh, rather rapidly running out of water, and if the Ethiopian um, uh, dam over the Nile is finished then the water problem, irrigation problem in Egypt is going to be exacerbated. So, uh, and nobody can afford to actually see Egypt go down the drain. Therefore, it will be kept afloat, but it is a very brutal regime and uh, it doesn't seem to relent at all. And I suspect that given the fact that the, the causes that gave rise to, to, the, um, uh, to the Arab revolts and most notably the one in Tahrir Square in, in Egypt are still there. Sooner or later, I suspect um, something else is going to erupt. I just cannot tell you. Right. Well, sooner or later, uh, let, let's let's end, Solly. You've given us a wonderfully 
concise and coherent take on a very complicated, confusing area. Um, in terms of 2023, the one thing you've talked about is this asymmetrical multipolar world. Is that going to continue in 2023? And how might that change? Might it actually clarify things with the emergence of three or four dominant regional powers, Iran, um, Turkey, Israel? But look, I mean, Iran, Iran now has a serious legitimacy problem, like so, which the regime never really faced, number one. And for your listeners, I would also suggest, I mean, this is maybe speculative, but um, the, the religious leader is 83 years old, presumably has cancer. He was expected to have died in the course of the last 15 years. So I suspect that part of what goes on in, in Iran also reflects um, behind the scenes power struggles as to who will replace him, whether or not it will be another mullah, because I understand he also wants his son to replace him. And I don't think the Iranian regime will, will, will tolerate that. But there must be behind the scenes power struggles among those who will be vying for ultimate power in the, in, in the Islamic Republic. Uh, but Iran has a lot of problems. It's economically, it, it, it's economically bleeding. It has a serious legitimacy problem. Turkey has serious economic problems. And the way we're going, we may, uh, our elections will take place, as I said, sometime sometime in May, but uh, we may enter those elections with the really legitimacy of the regime uh, being questioned by a good chunk of the population. So all those regional powers, such as uh, South, South Africa or, uh, or Brazil as well, are also very weak. Uh, so their, their, their potential to project power, in my view, is, is very limited. But until the um, big ones actually come to a settlement among themselves, I really don't see the regional powers to, to actually to decide or to determine what kind of world order we're going to have. This is their moment under the spotlight. I just don't know exactly how this will, this will continue. The problem, the, the places to look at are Russia is going to be weaker and weaker. But the Yeah, I was Russia going to ask, if, if Russia is indeed in 2023 further humiliated in Ukraine and they sue for a weak peace, how will that affect the region? Well, the thing is, Europe is the, Europe is the place which is most affected by, by this war. Uh, this war has destroyed a lot of the beliefs and structures that have kept the European Union afloat. Uh, and so everything will have to it will have to be rebuilt, and it has actually uh, strengthened the United States. As for the Middle East, I, I guess uh, yes, the Russians are still in Syria, but their resources are now more limited than they used to be. They were seeking to become uh, major power brokers. I really don't think they can do that. They have lost a lot of power in Central Asia. Look at. Uh, Look at uh, Kazakhstan and other Istans, which are no longer feeling uh, the pressure to actually side with, side with Russia. So um, it, it is going to come to how America and China in this coming year are going to arrange their relations, whether or not they'll be able to communicate and at least cooperate on matters that are globally important. And by the way, I'm sure you talk about all those things with other guests. All of this is happening with in, in the with, with in the background, a restructuring of the world economy and, and the rules of which and the exact uh, 
parameters of that restructuring quite unknown. So 2023 is going to be a rather difficult year. It is also incidentally the centennial of the Turkish Republic and our elections, I would say, are going to be an existential uh, election that will determine what kind of republic the Turkish Republic will be as it enters its second uh, centennial. So in that sense, I think it's very important and not just for Turkey itself, but also for its vicinity. Excellent.